right, let's uh, let's do some obituaries. We haven't done that in a while, and we have uh, two people that are worthy of comment uh, who are related to uh, the Cold War, which I would like to say is thankfully over, but uh, with all those missiles still pointing at one another, I guess that's not quite the case yet. But passing away this week was James F. Brown, who as director of Radio Free Europe in the early 1950s played a seminal behind-the-scenes role in the rise of the Solidarity Movement, which eventually toppled the Communist Party in Poland. James F. Brown, who was director of Radio Free Europe in the early 1980s, played a seminal behind-the-scenes role in the rise of the Solidarity Movement, which eventually toppled the Communist Party in Poland. He died in Oxford, England uh, last month. It was noted in his obituary that although he was a British citizen, Mr. Brown was named director of Radio Free Europe, a network financed by the U.S. government. Upon joining in 1978, he brought a deep knowledge of Eastern European history to the job. He was director until 1984 when he resigned because of disagreements with the Reagan administration. Radio Free Europe was uh, originally started in Munich in 1951 with the intent of undermining communist regimes in the five Soviet bloc countries, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, and Poland. Its broadcasters were mostly exiles from those countries. Until 1972, Radio Free Europe and its sister network, Radio Liberty, were covertly financed by the CIA. Radio Liberty, which Brown did not lead, broadcast into the USSR. When uh, the CIA's role was exposed, Congress made the network's quasi-government agencies with an independent board of directors. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I'm sure the CIA had nothing to do with it from that point forward. Though to the New York Times, in their early years, Radio Free Europe's broadcasts were hard-edged, emphasizing the likelihood of communism's impending demise. That changed after Russian tanks rolled into Budapest in 1956, crushing the Hungarian Revolution. It was noted that just prior to and during the revolution, Radio Free Europe did broadcasts that were incendiary. And after the revolution collapsed, their investigations leading to a change in the tone of the broadcasts. James F. Brown uh, joined the network as a research analyst shortly after the Hungarian Revolution. By 1969, he was director of research, and in 1976 was named deputy director. Two years later, he took over. By that time, Radio Free Europe had already become more like a conventional international broadcasting service, but still with an anti-communist message. In 1992, Brown wrote in his memoir that he met Václav Havel, the dissident Czech playwright who had become elected president of Czechoslovakia in 1989. Havel enthusiastically greeted him, saying, Jim, we were colleagues. Wrote Mr. Brown, that made everything worthwhile. And passing away last month was Vitaly Ginzburg, a man who helped develop the Soviet hydrogen bomb. Born in Moscow in the waning days of Tsarist Russia, Ginzburg earned two doctorates in physics from Moscow University in 1940 and 42. He also joined the Communist Party, a decision reportedly he later seemed to regret. In 1948, he and other physicists at the Lebedev Physical Institute in Moscow raced to develop a hydrogen bomb before the United States, but the team had little idea how to proceed. Andrei Sakharov proposed using layers of uranium as a fuel, while Ginzburg suggested lithium-6. Their combined efforts eventually succeeded in creating the Soviet H-bomb. In the 1950s, Stalin initiated a wave of anti-Semitism and hostility toward intellectuals. Ginsburg was removed from the hydrogen bomb project and accused of being an anti-communist. And no, as far as we know, they did not earn him any praise from Senator Joe McCarthy. 
Apparently his wife was also wrongly accused of involvement in a plot to assassinate uh, Stalin. It was only his prestige as a scientist that saved him from a firing squad. Soon after Stalin died, the Russians indeed detonated their H-bomb. Later in life, Ginsburg turned his attention toward the rapidly emerging field of superconductivity. Ginsburg and other physicists created a series of equations that paved the way for the use of superconductors in such fields as medical imaging. The confirmed atheist was a supporter of the State of Israel and a leading critic of the Kremlin's recent growing relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church. Said Ginsburg, I'm convinced that the bright future of mankind is connected with the progress of science, and I believe it is inevitable that one day religions will drop in status to no higher than that of astrology. And uh, let's do an obituary we mentioned last June that we said we wanted to do more fully, and I guess uh, there's no time like the present. It was on June 8th that Omar Bongo Ondima, president of Gabon, died at age 73. Omar Bongo was Africa's longest-serving leader and an object of a big corruption case in France. Omar Bongo ruled oil-rich Gabon for 42 years. The Economist magazine noted that Mr. Bongo made no distinction between Gabon and his private property. They had become one. It was therefore perfectly natural, said the magazine, that an oil company granted a large concession for coastal drilling should slip him regular suitcases stuffed with cash. It was natural that government funds should pay for the Italian marble cladding his palace and that his wife Edith's limousine in which she was driven around Paris should be paid for with a check drawn on the Gabonese treasury. Added the magazine of the $130 million in his personal account at Citibank in New York, it was probable, although Citibank never asked, and nobody ever managed to pin a charge on him, that much of it was derived from the GDP of his country. We had the privilege of interviewing Ambassador Joseph Wilson on this program a few years back, and it's interesting to note that for a while he was America's ambassador to Gabon. When we spoke, I hoped that at some future point we'd be able to get some personal anecdotes from Ambassador Wilson about the singular figure of President Bongo. But uh, he may have been corrupt, but he certainly wasn't all bad. Business visitors to the capital of Gabon uh, uh, found it chic, feudal, and hospitable, like an Arab emirate. In Mr. Bongo's time, noted the magazine Gabon's consumption of champagne was said to be the highest in the world. The Economist noted that uh, Omar Bongo brought order and prosperity for a close and favored few, but did bring decades of tranquility which is a rare enough commodity in Central Africa. A president who stood only five foot two and was famous for his rather prominent platform shoes did take the unusual step a couple decades ago of banning the use of the term pygmy in Gabon. A notorious ladies' man, it was reported that President Bongo was indignant when in 2004, after a Miss Humanity pageant was held in Libreville, Miss Peru charged him with sexual harassment for summoning her to the palace, and he hoped to his nifty behind the paneling bed. Anyway, a character to be sure, but uh, uh, not all bad. Of course, when you contemplate what $130 million extracted from the Gabonese economy could do to help its citizens, well, that's another story. We in America like to, uh, to laugh at such figures in foreign countries, but uh, after watching Bernie Madoff and the shenanigans on Wall Street, I would say that we really uh, have, are in no position to be looking down our nose at other nations. 
Although I'm tempted to do some railing at Wall Street. I think we'll give that a rest on today's show. Instead, talk about the fact that uh, closer to home, tuition fees in universities in California are skyrocketing, which prompted some massive student protests last month. The California Aggie reported that the district attorney in Yolo County dropped charges against UC Davis students that were arrested in, in protests at Merak Hall. And we're going to have to address this issue of uh, what it's costing to get an education in California these days. According to the admissions website for UC Davis, the estimated annual costs for the 2009-2010 school year comes to $27,000. That's if you live off campus. That breaks down to fees of about $9,000, including a mid-year fee increase of almost $600,000 for health insurance, $1,500 $1,500 for books and supplies, room and board $12,000, estimated personal expenses of $1,300, and transportation $700. So for a four-year education, we're talking about $100,000. Of course, everyone's focusing in on the fees, which again only worked out to about one-third of the total costs of uh, a year's worth of education. should note that according to Time magazine, despite the economic downturn, college keeps getting more expensive. Duh. Time noted that tuition and fees for the current school year at a private four-year college averages $26,000, a 4.4% increase from a year earlier. In-state tuition and fees at public four-year schools rose 6.5% to an average of just about $7,000. So there you have it. Things are tough all over. Uh, UC would come in at at $3,000 above that. I'd like to point out that does... uh, include uh, the advantage of an actual University of California education, which still sets a pretty high standard among the world's universities. And this is not to slight the California State University system, also a model for the rest of the world. Looking at the data for California State University Chico, it appears that the uh, undergraduate fee table for six or more units is $2,700. And the comparable stats for uh, Chico State, fairly comparable to UC Davis. Fees, $5,300 a year. Books, supplies, $1,600. Room and board, $10,000. Transportation, $1,000. Personal, $2,000. For a total of $20,000. We haven't verified this, but uh, we've heard that uh, as of this year, uh, California now spends more money on its prisoners than it does on its students. I don't know if that's true, but uh, we're going to look into it. I do know that the, uh, that the annual uh, fees for the guests of our penal system runs to something like $40,000. We're going to have to see if we can't go down to the uh, California Aggie office and talk to some of the folks there who are really all over this story. We went down to the Aggie office a few years ago, had a great time noticing that, uh, uh, you know, they've got some great stuff in the newspaper. A lot of the sources come from other Uh, university newspapers, uh, one from University of Chicago, Yale University, the Daily Bruin from UCLA, the Miami Hurricane. It's kind of a cool thing that uh, various uh, university papers can share some of their articles. We we do wish that uh, we'd see something like this taking place in the various radio stations among universities in California. There is a UC radio network, at least there's alleged to be a UC radio network. This correspondent and a few other people have uh, uh, worked hard to try and uh, uh, make it more of a reality than a figment of a lot of people's imaginations. 
But uh, there appear to be a few hurdles that have to be leaped over to to make that a reality. And uh, we hope to be able to report some good news on that front in the months to come. I understand down that you seamer said they've now got a license to uh, operate um, uh, the 10th radio station in the UC network. And, um, well, actually, it's the 9th station in the network. UC San Francisco does not have a radio station, but does have an excellent um, uh, media office. Some bad news we have to report on uh, the UC front. Story got quite a bit of ink a couple months ago about how uh, how documents that were used to justify large grants from the federal government to, to support a violence prevention program at UC Davis raised some questions about inconsistencies in the reporting of crime statistics. It appeared that the more crimes you reported, the more money you made. Sacramento Bee did some comparisons in this area. That for 2005 to 2007, the uh, the number of sexual assaults reported were 48, 68, and 69, respectively. But uh, on second thought, and re- taking a closer look at the numbers, it turned out the actual figures were 21, 23, and 33, which is about 60% less. The university is taking a, uh, a close look at uh, the reporting of these numbers to see what they can do to see what they can do to have more accurate figures in the future. And uh, here's an item that uh, plays into our national debate over health care costs. When uh, California State University Sacramento student Scott Hawkins was beaten in October and taken to the UC Davis Medical Center where he passed away, uh, his family was shocked to receive a bill from the medical center for $30,000 which accompanied a form letter addressed to dear patient that implied they were indigent, stating the hospital could no longer provide them with services. This is a pretty embarrassing gaffe on the, uh, on the part of the medical center and uh, certainly raises some questions. According to reports in the press, Mr. Hawkins was declared dead five minutes after he arrived at the emergency room. But the billing indicates that... Uh, uh, there were emergency room services and payment for the patient's monitor, trauma rescue services, intubation, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. In desperate circumstances, you want the best, uh, you know, the best services money can buy. In this case, that works out to $30,000 for 300 seconds. Yeah, about $100 a second for medical care. So I hope at least that the, uh, the tragic death of this young man can kind of help spur on our national discussion about how something needs to be done about health care costs. As far as this correspondent can see, the only, only people benefiting from the current system are administrators and executives of various uh, HMOs and pharmaceutical companies, etc. America's health care system is certainly not working very well for the practitioners or the patients. All right, let's see if we can't close today's show with a, with a, on a little bit of an up note. It's been a rather somber uh, program today, but, um, you know, I guess this can't always be a barrel of laughs. Uh, but if you're thinking of going to do some eclipse chasing, and we've talked about this on this program in the past and recommended it highly, well, the, the word is in from Sky and Telescope magazine, Fred Espinak and meteorologist Jay Anderson. Uh, Espinak is, you know, Mr. Eclipse. Uh, have uh, sounded off on the topic of next July's South Pacific Eclipse, and they say the place to go see it is Tahiti. The shadow of, uh, of the moon only hits land in a couple of spots, one in the Cook Islands, one on Easter Island. Those are going to be full of people. 
But if you can get a boat in Tahiti and sail south, and there's going to be a lot of cruise services available, that's the way to go. Uh, that's kind of an expensive proposition. But, uh, you know, Tahiti on a bad day ain't too bad. So <laughs> I'd recommend, uh, uh, dear listener, that if you, if you want to go and do something exciting uh, next July, that's something to consider. Since I'm not positive that I'm going to be able to make it in July, we hope that uh, one of you at least will and be able to report uh, on it for all of us. Our thanks to Will Durst and Dan Bacher. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.